Welcome to the Science of Feeding the World podcast. In today's episode, we speak with Dr. Gia Aradatir, who had lots of really interesting things to say about aphids and her favorite aphids. And can you remember what her favorite aphid was? It was one with a little fin on its back. Giant willow aphids. It's really big in the aphid. And we spoke with Gia about genetic modification and about chemicals that plants and insects produce to defend themselves and communicate. Hello and welcome to the Science of Feeding the World podcast. I'm Hannah McGrath. I'm Alex Dye. And I'm Gary Fruin. And this week we are here with entomologist and aphid hunter extraordinaire Dr. Gia... That was a shameless uh, attempt to avoid saying your surname. Um, And the first question we're going to kick off with this week is, how do plants defend themselves? Here we go. That's a big one. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um, Well, they have multiple ways of defending themselves. So, you know, we could be here for probably about a week talking about that. Oh, perfect. uh, Yeah, (laughs) I know. But uh, yeah, they do that through um, direct defenses, indirect defenses, and then they also have tolerance or, you know, normally they don't have all of those at the same time. So what's direct and indirect defenses? So uh, direct defenses could be things like, um, you know, hairy leaf surfaces or, or, um, or things like silica that are hard to chew, things like that. Ah, okay. Whereas indirect yeah. defenses are more like color or odor or, you know, but, the same plants, colors and odors yeah. that might make the insects be repelled or yeah yeah okay so would you say is the, the direct ones are if the pest is already there trying to attack and the indirect is to stop them from even getting to yeah the oh plant. Wow. Yeah. yeah so we really i guess want our plants our crop plants that we feed ourselves with like wheat um to be able to defend themselves in these ways are they very good at defending themselves the crops that we use not particularly (laughs) (laughs) well plants can't run away right i say right as though that's a question i know (laughs) plants can't run away so i'm guessing they have to be kind of a bit good at defending themselves yes yes they are but um but most of our crop plants have been bred under very high uh, pesticide regimes so uh, and when they were selecting for those varieties they were selecting more for yield and quality and not so much for resistance against pests or diseases so um, so those traits may not have been followed through in the breeding programs and that's why quite a lot of our croplands are quite susceptible to uh, to insects mm. and other diseases you know so we've I say weave. Um, so traditional crop breeding has kind of made, created a problem or has exacerbated a problem that yeah, was think, already there. I think there's, you know, there's always unintended consequences by things that we do. And this was being done, you know, with the best intention of giving us more crop per plot of land, which they've done very successfully. Um but now people are thinking actually, you know, we need to get that resistance back into the plant. And that's what we've been doing or are trying to do, not just for insects, but for diseases as well. I, from one of your papers, I've read things about like the Watkins collection and all of these other things. What could you explain to us a little bit about what those are? So this uh, collection is a collection of wheat, um, which um, 
was originated from a guy called uh, Watkins. He innovative uh, naming there. I know. I know. <laughs> and he um, he wrote to all of the uh, British consulates around the world, basically, and asked them to go out, collect some wheat, and send back to him. And then he kept those all separate. So we call them a, a collection of land races that were collected. Um, and these were collected in about the 1920s and 30s, so before the Green Revolution. So they thought have a more genetic diversity than mm. our modern uh, varieties. Mm. So we're looking back at those to see whether there are any resistance traits in there against cereal aphids in our case, but other people are looking for traits against other pests or, or diseases. And then we also go back uh, to what we call the wild relatives because wheat um, is uh, hybridized three genomes basically so we go back to the parents of of wheat uh the diploid plants and we screen those as well and there are collections that we can access for that can i flag up the words diploid diploid <laughs> yeah because so wheat yeah. genetics is notoriously complicated and I tried to Google it once and didn't get very far. So do you want to try and explain <laughs> what happened with this whole wheat? How could it happen? It's got like, what, three genomes? Yes. I mean, I, I struggle to understand what a genome is, let alone how a plant yeah. can have three of them. So I know I'm probably not the best person to talk about this, but hybridization in plants has happened uh, in nature um, and multiple times through evolution, mm. I think. But uh, but. People started doing this more deliberately. I think the first example was with maize. I may be wrong on this, but uh, where uh, Tausinte was the original plant and then they um, they put two of them together and realised that they get 100% more yield if they hybridised those two different genomes. Okay, I can imagine a 100% more yield is... is very attractive, right? Yeah. Um, and then similarly in wheat, you hybridise these two, they call them A, B and D genome. So there's... Um, we have, you know, uh, humans are diploids, and, and, but uh, wheat is hexaploid, so it's got six chromosomes. So yeah. we have two, two copies, copies of, of our chromosomes, genetic material, right? And yeah. they have six copies. So if, That's mad. <laughs> if you're kind of then trying to look for resistance, does that mean you have to look in, if you were looking at a genetic level, you're going to have to look in six different places? Yeah, so the genetics are very, very complicated in... Uh, in wheat but, i guess uh, it would be very complicated to go in from the gene level and look for resistance traits are you uh, you're screening you're you're growing these wheat strains and then exposing them to aphids yeah. and things like that and seeing if there is it and then if one happens to not get eaten or get eaten less than some of the mm. others you would then go in and start looking for genes and or metabolic pathways that yeah are so once you yeah. Once you've done that, once you've identified, so we've we've done this and uh, we do this in collaboration with uh, with you know plant biologists and, and geneticists. So uh, we found a, a couple of lines that show um, promise, and then we give those to to them. They cross them with a susceptible variety. So you cross a resistant and susceptible variety. You grow those up, and then you test the progeny of those, and then you carry on with that to to try to understand and identify the underlying resistance mechanism. And then we would hope to put those into commercial use, I guess, in a field somewhere. Yeah, so that's, that's the plan. Those are resistant. Yeah, because if you can deliver a plant that already has that resistance in the seed, then you don't need to spray with, pest with pesticides and you don't need to, mm. um, you know, 
drive over with, with the tractor, you know, those things, then, you know, that is the most sustainable way, mm. or at least mm. that's the first level of defense mm. because, you know, that mm. will definitely help. Mm. So we've spoken about the fact that plants need to defend themselves because they can't run away. And then they defending with, in particular, you're, you're looking at the aphids kind of defense of that. And then you've been using the Watkins collection to look at finding kind of slightly older um, sources of resistance to help the plants defend themselves, right? Yeah. And then we've also been looking at, I was talking about the wild relatives. Uh, mm. So we've been looking at those and that's actually where we're finding the most interesting uh, results because there seems to be more resistance in those older diploid varieties um, that contributed to the wheat genome. Um, but we've also been looking at some of the other relatives because there's um, there are lots of different species of, of grasses. And there's a um, there's this particular one, Triticum monococcum, which is einkorn and, and was used uh, in farming in the Neolithic. Um, and there we found uh, very good resistance traits. Is there a reason that wild relatives would be a richer source of resistance genes and mechanisms? Um, I think there's just more variety in, yeah. you know, because... Uh, you don't tend to see in a you know in sort of a wild meadow these 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 mass pest populations, mm. whereas um, you know in um, in a commercial agricultural field that that's like a heaven. It's like a sweet shop for insects, mm. and uh, and they you know um, if they're left there uh, undisturbed, then they can really increase their populations quite quickly. And you know and those plants are more nutritious as well, which is going to yeah. have an effect. So. Mm. So you've kind of briefly touched on the screening. I don't know if you want to talk about that maybe a little bit more. So how do you screen plants or wheat to find out if it's resistant to aphids? Because I know you've got quite a lot or you've run a lot of field trials here at Rothamsted on the farm looking at that. Yeah, we do. The screening we do is both uh, we start in the controlled environment normally because uh, it's quite labor intensive and there's a lot of lines um, and to get enough replication, we, we tend to start in um, in the lab and uh, and we put aphids into little clip cages um, and uh, and put them onto the plants. So they're basically um they can't go anywhere. So, it's, so do you want to explain what the little cages look like? Because they are these are the I, handmade ones, right? That these are yeah, <laughs> these are handmade That's ones. A, you can't really buy these commercially. They're basically they're at two centimeters, so they're less than an inch in diameter, of circular uh, mm. cages, and you put them on a on a little hair clip, um, and you make sure that uh, because you don't want to damage the plant, so so you put a little sponge on there as well, <laughs> and you you sort of. Uh, Put that gently around the plant so that the aphid can't escape, but it has access to mm. the leaf to feed on. And um, you put the adults on there and you leave them on there for, you know, a day or two, depending on what species you're looking at. And then you come back and you look at and you count how many nymphs it's produced. And then you you leave them again. And then you look at, you know, how, how long they take to develop and how, you know, what biomass increases and that sort of so so you see how well the aphids actually do on those plants, whether they flourish or whether they um, really don't like it mm. and can't survive. So I work with a commercial <laughs> carrot grower called Ben 
And I was explaining to him how we can kind of rear aphids and stuff. And it can sound really crazy when you talk to a farmer about these little clip cages that we use to keep aphids <laughs> on plants. Yeah. And now we're like growing thousands of aphids for our experiments. And they kind of think it's a bit mad. So <laughs> I'm glad that we've got the uh, clip cage image in mind. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it is, it's very effective. It's very simple, but it's very, very effective. And then once you, once you've done that, you then select, a, you know, a variety of, of those lines and you take those out to the field and you see whether actually what you're seeing in the lab actually, you know, happens in real life out in the field where there are lots of other variables to contend with. Sounds easy, right? <laughs> so how long does it say you've done some stuff in the lab and you've got some reasonably promising results? How long would it then take for that to kind of go into the wheat that we would, or the flour we would buy in a supermarket to break bread or something? You know, how long does that process take? So I think they talk about um, breeding a new variety taking, you know, six years. Mm. So they have some new methods now, which they call speed breeding, where they can mm. bring the generations of wheat through quicker, but it still takes, you know, years not yeah. months so it's not a easy fix it's not an easy fix but you know but it is a, a you know a very good fix if we can find it and there are a number of uh, resistance genes to insects which have held up for a long time there's one insect in the uk called uh, the orange wheat blossom midge for example uh, and there's a, a single dominant gene for that uh, which came from uh, it was identified in Canada and was brought over here. And uh, and that's now in uh, probably over 60% of the UK wheat varieties. And and the varieties that uh, have that, they, they don't need to spray for that midge. And that's, you know, that's been really successful and held up for a long time. So, it you know, once you've got it, it might not last forever, but it's a very good solution for, you know, well, yeah, yeah, it works. It works, yeah. It's time for the rapid fire questions. It's time to ask some questions really, really fast. This is this this is the section that we've called uh quite quite creatively the rapid fire question round. <laughs> oh, okay, right. Sorry, Let me get some water. Yeah. How good at dodging question bullets are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, really bad at things like um, you know, quizzes and stuff. It's just just your just your knee jerk reaction to just, mm -hmm. just quick quick God. response. You okay. don't have to deliver. We try to keep it as specific as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite. Okay. So, okay. Uh, beach or pool? Ah, uh, beach. <laughs> beach, yeah. Metallica or Coldplay? Coldplay. Coldplay, yeah, good choice. Pizza or ice cream? Pizza. Okay. Remote detection of barley yellow dwarf virus or infield crop walking? Infield crop walking. Oh, that's a good choice. Good choice. Controversial. Uh, we'll be coming back to that one later. We'll pick up on that in a minute. Um, spring or autumn? Spring. It's my birthday. It's in spring. Oh, that's nice. What's the last film that made you cry? Oh, I cry over every film. It's really embarrassing. I Especially cried. on planes. I it's cried at um, very, very embarrassing on planes. I cried at Downton Abbey the other week, so oh. <laughs> I can't really <laughs> claim moral superiority over any of this. Uh, builder's Brew or Skinny Soya Chai Latte? Uh, builder's Brew. Eradicate all the aphids in the world or massively increase populations of natural enemies? 
Uh, we need more natural enemies, definitely. I like ethics, <laughs> you know. And, and, you know, if there weren't any, I'd be out of a job. Yeah, keep us in, oh, keep yeah. Some work, it? yeah. <laughs> I've also got, I'm going to add a question onto the rapid fire. Um, as a fellow of the Royal Entomological Society, mm. what is your favourite insect? Oh, I wish I'd asked that question. Yeah, this is really, really bad. And if you say the wrong one, the whole society <laughs> will know. <laughs> I, know. I know. I'm the convener of the aphid special interest group, so I'm going to have to say an aphid, and I'm going to have to say uh, the giant willow aphid. Oh, that's a good choice. Is that, that just because choice. it's really, really big? It's because it's good. You know, it's it's huge for an aphid, and it's got like this dinosaur um, sort of uh, fin on its back. Mm, a little sail. Yeah, yeah, so nobody cool. knows what uh, what it's for. And mm. uh, it's pretty much, well, it's asexual. We haven't found any sexual, um, uh, any males in that species. And we don't know how it overwinters. So we have Mysteries no idea. Abound. I know, mm. I know. I did my PhD on this beast and uh, and I'm still fascinated by it. So. That's I've, awesome. So many questions about it now. Yeah. <laughs> we get them a lot in the in the suction traps. Here. Yeah, every now, just every now and then. It's always nice to see because it's about four times bigger than every other aphid in the in the sample. Yeah, it's huge, and you know it's beautiful. It's got really beautiful markings as well for an aphid, um, and it's a big problem in New Zealand at the moment. Apparently, oh. um, yeah, I keep getting emails from people over there saying they're having problems with huge populations of those on their willow trees. So. Yeah, it's a wow. it's a good aphid. Look it up. Jerry says this. Adam says that. What is Adam saying? I've really been enjoying this chat. But I think we should move on to the next session now. Thanks. We so we were talking about breeding techniques really in the first uh, segment, um, but you've also done some work with GM, and you were involved in a project to um, put the aphid alarm pheromone into uh, plant Arabidopsis. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that experiment? Yeah, so I came into that project a little bit later. Um, mm. And uh, at that point, um, again, I was the entomologist, not the geneticist, but mm. um, there is uh, aphids uh, give out an alarm pheromone when they are attacked. I remember because we were on the Royal Society Christmas list. We <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you yeah. told me the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And, good. you know, and it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. So it warns because um, aphids are... Um, mostly female, um, or they reproduce asexually during the summer months. And uh, if one is attacked, uh, it gives out this alarm pheromone, which is called E-beta-farnesine, which um, alerts all the other aphids around that there's a predator there and they should move away, which they duly do. But it also tells the uh, predators that know how to listen in on on that signaling and, uh, and it... Uh, tells them that there are, there are aphids in the area. So um, uh, colleagues of mine um, knew of this and, and had thought of how to exploit uh, this to uh, repel aphids from wheat crops. And they had initially tried to put it out in essential oils, but because it's such a volatile compound, it didn't stay in the area for long mm. enough. So you were kind of putting it out and it would just evaporate straight yeah. away and then yeah, you've was, paid all the money and it's not protecting your plant it's not yeah. protecting your plant basically because it it's so yeah it just it, it's like you know if you put on a perfume you know quite a lot of it just disappears within the first half hour and then they uh the gene for this uh this smell 
epitomanosine is also found in peppermint plants and the gene for this was known. So they um, they engineered this into a wheat plant here at Rothamsted and uh, and we were testing this in the lab and it worked brilliantly. Uh, aphids were repelled by the smell of that plant and and, uh, um, and beneficial insects were, um, or aphid parasitoids were attracted to this. So so we were working on this here uh, in the lab for a, um, for a while, and then we got permission to take it out to the field um, where we were testing it uh, there as well. Hmm. So I saw that in the boat that the, there's a wild potato that uses this as a defense mechanism. Yeah. As, so already, I, yeah. In, I, in nature, if I remember correctly, so in that potato, the uh, the uh, alarm pheromone epitaphanosine is actually produced from some of the uh, surface hairs, not actually from the, the whole mm. plant itself, if I remember that correctly. But uh, but yeah, it is, it's a smell that is known in, mm. in plants as well. If a plant is producing the epitaphanosine, so that's the alarm pheromone. So if a plant yeah. is naturally producing this pheromone, it's kind of always it does that does that get switched on or, or maybe I'm asking the I know these are quite specific <laughs> questions. But yeah. if a plant is always producing an alarm pheromone, does that not mean that the kind of natural enemies have evolved not to respond? Because if it's shouting I'm being eaten, but there are no pests there, won't all the natural enemies come and be like, There's no there's nothing here <laughs> for me to food? eat? <laughs> you know? It's a bit like kind yeah. of telling me dinner's on the table and then you come down and dinner is not on that table. And if you do that a few times when I'm a teenager, I get grumpy and I just don't turn up kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was one of the things that people were thinking about and 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 looking to see if you could find a promoter that uh, made the plant switch that um, signal on. So promoter's part of a gene. That allows yeah. the gene to be regulated. Yeah. So if that could yeah. be, so if the promoter um, switched the gene on, you know, as an aphid um, started feeding on a plant or, mm. or in other ways, but uh, but the project never uh, got to that stage because we took it out to the field and uh, and we didn't see the same results in the field as we did in the lab, mm. which is why it's always really important to take um, our experiments and and do them in the in the environment where they are going to be mm. used. Because, a lot changes, I guess, when you go yeah, out to the field. Yeah, yeah, a lot changes when you go out to the field. Mm. And unfortunately it didn't work, but it's, it, it, it was a brilliant idea. And I, th- I still think it's a brilliant idea. And yeah. I'm sure that um, something like this, which is, you know, which, which is a bit more clever, uh, can, you know, could work. And you yeah. just need to find, find the right ways. Do you think we'll see it. more of that in the future? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so because yeah. we're understanding the biology of things much better, and we're mm-hmm. understanding the the whole agricultural ecosystem much much better. And you know, there is a lot out there. If, you know, when when I'm out in the field, and you know, my my favorite the favorite part of my job is when I'm out um, counting insects and and looking at them and seeing um, what what's there. There are a lot of of different uh, species. There's a lot of biodiversity. Um, in the agricultural ecosystem as well, mm. and uh, and I think we can we can be much better at using that. I was just going to say that I was thinking about it earlier over lunch, and I was kind of thinking so when a plant is producing these alarm pheromones, um, it's kind of uh, no sorry not when a plant when an uh, so <laughs> let me start again yeah. so when an aphid gets eaten 
yeah by a predator or gets attacked by a predator so maybe like a ladybird larvae crawling around or something so it starts mm-hmm. producing these alarm pheromones right yeah and that's basically just like a bad trip advisor review pretty much <laughs> don't come to this plant <laughs> it's not great you might get eaten yeah yeah, yeah it's so that's it's kind more of immediate I- right it's um yeah. yeah or more more like screaming ah as you're eating kind of thing <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's sort of yeah you you don't go uh into that restaurant if you see people are not you know it yeah it's very it's a very immediate yeah, yeah. signaling so you, just to touch on that again so the aphids produce the alarm pheromone how long does that alarm pheromone last for um i don't know how long it lasts for not very long at all i think um but uh, the responses from the other aphids is you know we're talking you know probably one two three seconds the the ones that are around them it's mm. it's very very quick um and i, I don't think it, it doesn't persist in the environment for very long at all I'm just shamelessly using you because I've been reading a lot about this for my own PhD <laughs> recently. So I'm not yeah, I'm just using you as Google right now. I'm sorry. No, but it's, you know, it's fascinating. And it's fascinating that, um, I mean, this is one component of the alarm pheromone. There's, there are, you know, there are more chemicals um, in the aphid alarm pheromone, but this is the one that uh, people have been using. But it's also, um, it's the context in, in which they are um, encountering those smells. And uh, and it's a combination of smells. So it's sort of we talk about volatile profiles. So if you know if this smell is in in a mint plant, then the aphid wouldn't respond in the same way as if it is with one other compound coming from an aphid. So mm-hmm. it's you know it's it's both qualitative and quantitative. The um, you know the sort of context of how insects respond mm-hmm. to. Uh, odors which is it's, it's a really fascinating field actually we did we had cassie on we had um we had an episode uh, on how do insects smell yeah yeah okay brilliant yeah mm. it is i mean it's it's brilliant it was crazy. Of, yeah yeah and i think a lot of the smells that we're looking at are you find in perfumes and stuff and it's so does the peppermint use it in the same way? So we said that the wild potato can use this chemical, but you synthesized it from peppermint. Or yeah, yeah. Does peppermint use it as a defense mechanism, or does it use it for don't something completely? So. Else? I don't know. So you couldn't use Tic Tac Fresh Mint to remove you your extract. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe if you grind that, try to spray it on. Yeah. <laughs> you can still enjoy the delicious taste. <laughs> I was just going to do one last oh, thing because yeah. I don't I actually know what time it is and how long. <laughs> Finally, this might be Gary being like, stop talking. No, it is um, not. But we had uh, in our quick fire of dodge the question bullet round, um, we were asking about, we kind of brought up this remote detection of barley yellow dwarf virus or infield crop walking. Mm. And now is your chance to defend your choice. You said infield crop walking, right? Yeah, that's that's a selfish choice, actually. Oh. Um, Is that because it will give you a job in the future yeah. and it won't give a rope? Yeah. No, it's just because I I really like being outside and mm, you know and, you know walking through the fields and uh, and looking to see what's there, which yeah. is uh, which is much more fun than uh, sitting inside and yeah, and looking at the screen. The joy of walking through. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, so from a personal level, in field walking is much more fun so we should probably talk about what remote detection of a virus is 
because it does sound very cool. So we've been working on um, trying to use uh, remote sensing to detect aphid. Yeah, we're just using imaging to uh, to take pictures of plants and and see if we can uh, detect the aphids uh, firstly, and then also because aphids transmit viruses um, through their saliva, um, which are um, and these viruses are actually even bigger problem than the aphid itself because mm. the virus can cause uh, big uh, damage and yield uh, reductions. Uh, it's kind of like um, mosquitoes and malaria, right? They, yeah. ca- they carry the bigger problem yeah. inside yeah. them, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. 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 And I, that's what I often say when I'm talking to people that don't know aphids, that it, they are really the, the sort of mosquitoes of the plant world. Mm. They, you know, mm. they quite mm. can be quite uh, damaging. And... Uh, but aphids are quite hard to find when you're walking through the field. You really have to crouch down and look underneath leaves and, and then you have to count them. And it, I, know, I, just, I know exactly what you're laughing at. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, probably will end up doing about a chapter of my thesis on mapping aphids in fields. Mm. Alex has spent, I went out with Alex once to look for... Uh, Rapalocyphe and Pedi, the yeah. bird cherry oats. And because they, and, they live right at the bottom of the plant sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So we were sort of having to dig around in the soil to try and find all these things. But Great afternoon. Around. Thanks for that, Alex. <laughs> it was during the heat wave in the summer as well, so it was very warm. <laughs> very warm. They are, yeah, they, are, uh, they can be quite hard to find those. As well as Science Inc., you're also studying your MBA at the moment. Is that right? In business? Yeah. Um, so what does MBA stand for? Uh, Master of Business Administration. Quite a glamorous title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, why? Why do, we, do you take this on as a scientist? Um, it's not something I imagine most scientists undertake. Um, no, I, um, I'm. I started. I'm doing this part time. Started a couple of years ago. And, uh, there's uh, there's a couple of scientists in my cohort. Um, so I'm doing it at Warwick Business School, and the reason I. I uh, started doing it is because once you uh, start working more as a scientist, then there's um, there's more requirement to to bring in money for uh, for projects. You you have to manage people, you have to manage your budgets, um, you have to think very much about strategy. You have to think about um, the sort of the economy where the money is coming from, and and looking sort of at the wider aspects that affect how likely you are to be able to carry out research mm. and, and the most effective ways of doing your research. And things like, um, you know, operations management, how you plan your projects, how you plan the, you know, your capacity or, and things like that. And, you know, they're, they're not necessarily all that interesting to a scientist as such, but, uh, but actually these are very useful things because once once you start developing in your career, it it's sort of like being self-employed or running a little business because mm. you you need to bring the money in for your projects and you need to try to keep your students and and bring people in and 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 then um, then scientists that have groups need to then keep those running by bringing in more grants and, and keeping that stuff going. So it is, it, it's a really, hamster wheel you know, of running and chasing money to yeah. get more money. To when do keep you find time to do some science? Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah, then you end up doing much less in the, in the field, in the lab, and, mm. and you end up doing much more of the administration work, which 
you don't learn when you're doing a PhD. Mm. So how many days last summer would you have got to spend in a field and how many days did you get to spend doing admin, writing grants, chasing up? This is a loaded question. I I think uh, probably not more than a couple of weeks in total that I did um, in the in the lab and field probably last summer because it was mostly about writing and and you know I'm I was doing quite a lot of analysis as well but uh, but yeah you do less and less actual physical research and and more of the other um, other things that also need to be done and are also interesting and I'm finding them more and more interesting which is why I decided to um, mm. do the MBA and and I think it's really useful I think if I had um, had some of this training instead of some of my transferable skills training, which was more about team building and things like that, um, I think I probably would have done some things differently and maybe been a little bit more efficient with the way that I was doing things because you just, you know, there are certain things that you can learn how to how to do, like, you know, planning projects a little bit better and 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 and, you know, keeping track of things better. So this is is the finishing day. (laughs) You're going to be tested now. So this is uh, the the thousand most commonly used English words. Okay. We'll give you a minute to read them, don't worry. You have a a few minutes to uh, to put together a sentence describing your science. Sentence describing my science. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I can't find any aphids. That's, that's, no, you, you might know. have to improvise a little. How can they not be? <laughs> How can they not be on here? Right? I think it's to remind us that not everyone talks about aphids every single day of their life. Right. Okay. Fun, fun searching for sisters in the field. Very nice. <laughs> searching for sisters in the field. Sisters. Yeah, because they're all yeah. sisters. Yeah, oh, wow, yeah, that's very good. Or mothers and daughters. That. Or yeah. So fun searching for sisters in the field. Wow. wow. Can, can, we, can I have? Can we have a look? Because we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna also try and do it. You can start, Hannah. It would really help if I was good at the alphabet. Working with friends, oh. Oh. because you were talking about collaborating a lot and different. You know, you were talking about plant biologists and mm. you know that a scientist doesn't just have one skill. Yeah, I think that's the most fun thing about science. Actually, is that you work with so many different people um, on different projects and people with different expertise. That's the best thing keeps it interesting understanding or studying tiny animals that eat our food that's pretty good that is pretty pretty good good, actually I feel like you've you've covered all the bases now (laughs) (laughs) and that concludes this week's episode of how do plants defend themselves with Dr. Gia (laughs) Aradadir yeah Um, and thank you very much for coming in thank you very much and we will see you in the next episode Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Science of Feeding the World podcast. We'd love if you could like, subscribe and share, or you can get in touch if you're particularly outraged about what we've said today. 
Search for the Science of Feeding the World podcast on all our favourite social media channels because we can't be bothered to look after anything other than Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. That's right.